0: A podcast one production. I have a confession. Wherever I go, everywhere in the world, I see dead people. Okay, so maybe they're technically not dead. But I see them everywhere, shuffling around in public, dead-eyed stare, staring into the palm of their hand, grinning like idiots, lights on, nobody home. Hmm. Okay, so maybe they're more like zombies, And like every zombie movie you've ever seen, these zombies are the product of a horrible virus. A virus that ate their brains, ate their souls, left them dead inside. And you know what? I bet you see them, too. Walking along, looking down, staring into their hands, smiling at nothing. The smartphone is a marvel. It put the entire world of knowledge in our hand. And the smartphone, well, the smartphone is a terror because it opened up every one of our minds in ways that we'd never anticipated to forces we'd never encountered. To user engagement sounds so innocent. What it means is that whatever comes through that screen on the smartphone has been engineered using neuroscience and behavioral science to be as alluring as it possibly can be so that it's gotten harder and harder and harder to look away. Our attention has been spirited away into these little black mirrors. Our lives are no longer entirely our own, and no one saw that coming. Now that it's here, how do we escape this planet of zombies? Today I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. In this third series, we conclude our conversations with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. We're fighting a war against our devices, but we don't even know the ground rules. How did our karma land us here? And what can we do to change our ways so we don't repeat the mistakes of the past? We're exploring the human ethics of the digital era, this time on The Next Billion Seconds. A very odd thing happened one day last year. I was checking my balances with a mobile banking app. At that point, It was probably right before I'd flown to Japan to write all the episodes of Cryptonomics, and I'd, I'd charged quite a lot on flights and on hotels for the business travel and the app. The app decided it was going to express its concern. Would you like some help managing your finances, it asked, which was insulting enough. But then the choice it offered me was this. Yes, and maybe later. That's That's what really got me, because there was no way to reject it. There was no way to say no. The design of the app deprived me of my ability to say, no, I've got this. Instead, it placed me in the position of needing immediate help or maybe needing it later. And when my head cleared, I knew that's what had gotten me so angry. It was that loss of agency. That I couldn't do anything about it other than to accept the help or perhaps delay the inevitable accepting of help. And I was feeling this way because of design decisions taken throughout the bank that had created this app. That this design, it reflected how they wanted to manage me as a customer. And I didn't like that at all. I even considered closing my accounts to send them a message because... I didn't know any other way to make it clear what they'd done wrong. I didn't have any other levers to pull. And if this feels like something you've experienced in an interaction with technology, you're not alone. Our devices are now so close to us so much of the time. They can irritate us as they try to spirit a little bit of our own self into themselves for their needs. We hear it over and over. If you're not paying for it, then you're the product. And the product product gets bought and sold to whomever can pay. It doesn't have any choice, no agency. And yet, all of these systems are designed. They're the outcome of thousands of choices made by managers, by designers, by programmers. They are not accidents. They're decisions taken to further specific goals. And we can question the decisions, though as those reflect business goals. Perhaps that's not the best way to start. Perhaps the best way to start is by educating those managers, those designers, those engineers in ethics. Because questions of freedom of choice and agency and responsibility, these are all ethical questions. How do you create a space where people can make choices without coercion? How do you create something that opens possibilities rather than closing them off? How can you best let people be people in all of their messy, unpredictable, emotional, and thoroughly human ways? These are the questions that Dr. Matthew Beard has been working to answer. As an ethicist of technology, he asks not, what can we do, but rather, what should we do? Matt, Welcome to The Next Billion Seconds.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: All right, let's unroll that example of that moment that I had with the bank. What can we learn from that?
1: So I think what we can learn from that is the way in which, I mean, there's, there's lots of different lessons. One is how frustrated we get when design choices seem to inhibit our autonomy or our freedom of choice rather than trying to promote that. Because when you get to the core of what technology is... Technology and technological artifacts are meant to help us to do things that otherwise we couldn't do. So they're tools. Right, they are tools in a, in a sense, although we we can talk a little bit about the, the sense in which they're tools and the sense in which they're not. But they're, they're either meant to create new things that we're able to do that we couldn't do otherwise, or help us to do things that we can currently do faster than we could otherwise do them. What that means is that they are inherently meant to be connected to choice. They're meant to amplify our humanness and let us do more of the human stuff. And the human stuff is all about choosing and it's all about freedom. So there is this perversity when this thing that's meant to be about freedom suddenly starts to inhibit that freedom. So I think that's lesson one. And lesson two is just how clear it is, the, the intentions through which uh, or or the intentions for which a technology is designed reveal themselves in particular design decisions. So if you are designing something which ostensibly is meant to be helping people to manage their finances um, as they see fit and hopefully in a kind of responsible way, you make a series of design choices. But if part of your intention is also to continually stay in that person's life or to extract as much information from that person as possible those intentions can also reveal themselves in design choices. So some of the some of the implicit narratives around why we build technology in a commercial context rather than in a government or a nonprofit context can sometimes reveal themselves through design. And even if that wasn't the intention that the designers had when they built that particular functionality, that's now where the conversation's at.
0: So we have because I I, I, I certainly give this a thought because it had that, that screen that I saw wasn't an accident. It had to be cleared by managers. It had to be designed by a designer. It had to be implemented by an engineer. There was a whole set of moving pieces that had to come together in agreement to decide that this was the right thing to do, that this was the right set of non-choices to offer me. How does an organization that is ostensibly just trying to save and manage my money, come to a place where it's now trying to be coercive around my behavior? Is it because it has a tool that allows it or because it thinks it has a tool that allows it?
1: There's an interesting way of thinking about it. The way I tend to think about it is that uh, I, the way that you set up this problem, I think in, in one way is, is really nice in saying there are, there are a myriad of different choices that are made before you come to access a product. And one of the challenges that we have is that we can't interrogate those choices. And that means that we're trying to infer from what we see, what the intentions are. And that's the first point at which social narratives around tech design kind of fall down. But on the other hand, I'm not convinced that these are choices in the proper sense of the word, because that presumes that we've got this kind of informed, rational actors who are having sustained debate about these particular problems, I think what we're seeing is more a this is the way things are done. Um, We've seen this done in other contexts. We now have this functionality. We'll do this as well. And there's a lot of the, I mean, if you want to talk about um, the, the technology problem in a really big sense, a lot of systems and processes that we have in organizations have turned us into automatons. They've turned us into systems and processes as well. So I'm not entirely convinced that when we see bad pieces of design, that they are always manifestations of choice. They should be, but I'm not convinced they always are. I think that there's it's it's the water we're swimming in, right?
0: So, so in other words, what you're saying is that these managers, these designers, and these engineers are... As constrained. In other words, the getting, the, the choice money that says, would you like vanilla or would you like vanilla, right? It's that, that, that all of them are now in the same trough, in the same sort of path that's leading them to make the same sort of decisions that are going to end up with me feeling like I don't have any decisions to make. Because all along the way, they haven't really had the freedom to make the decisions they feel they need.
1: I think that might be what happens in effect. I think also what tends to happen is that you, you have a single app that's produced. And and an app doesn't look like that big or complicated thing when you are the consumer of the app. But there's a lot of work, especially when an organization is putting out an app and there are lots of people working on the look and feel of it, the UX, the functionality behind the scenes. But each of those groups is usually working on their specific part of the, of the problem. And so you have siloed groups working on particular operations and usually their particular, um, their particular goals have um certain targets they might need to meet they might need have KPIs so from on a human level they might be incentivized to design in particular ways and those things can sometimes contradict each other and so you have cross purposes so the the artifact might you know formally or officially have like one purpose or intention that it's trying to serve but built into that think of it like an iceberg you've got this little part you can see on the top but underneath is all of this stuff that we don't get to see, that's not necessarily called out at a design level. And and
0: in, in this specific case, part of it's that, yes, the formally the app's helping to manage my money, but informally the app's also trying to manage the number of bad loans the bank has, right? That the bank actually needs to do that because that's part of their financial goals. And so the app is kind of caught in the crossfire here. It wants to make sure that I don't end up in a bad state, not so much... For me, but to protect the bank and the bank's loan portfolio.
1: And to add to that, it doesn't tell you that that's what it's doing or why. And so, absent of that information, if you say, well, it kind of makes sense, like risk management is a big part of what financial institutions um, need to do from a business standpoint. And if we look back at financial crises and bad loans and the kind of the Hugely negative effects that they can have on people's lives, arguably, there's a responsibility to do that, to make sure that they're not making bad loans. So, if that's clear that that is the intended purpose behind this kind of design, and it's not just, oh, we want to stay in your lives, you know, I mean, financial services is a different conversation, and they're remodeling themselves to be about financial well being, and financial well being needs to be in your life, it needs to be ubiquitous. And that might be part of what's going on as well. But So much of this is also that we get this product and it comes with uh, terms of use that nobody reads. Um, But what it doesn't come with is, uh, I guess, the narrative around here's what we're trying to build, here's why, and here's the vision of the world that we are trying to create with this technology. And without that, we, we fill in the blanks as consumers based on a limited piece of information, the tech we have, we assume either good intentions and ineptitude, or bad intentions and malevolence, neither of which is necessarily fair to anyone.
0: Is that framing story... That allows us all to rest comfortably in how the decisions have been made. Is that framing story part of the ethical responsibility of the bank and of the creators of that app? Do they have to be telling that story not just to me as the consumer, but to themselves as the creators?
1: Yeah, I would almost argue that the latter is more important. Um, you know, we're talking about, I guess, on on two different levels their ability to communicate to you is really important, why they've done this, to what ends they have done this. That's important to secure your trust and it's, um, and it's important because it helps you to be able to press back if there are issues that you think warrant further interrogation, trade-offs that they've made that you think they've made in the wrong way. Um, but you can imagine an organisation that has done all of the hard work and all of the heavy lifting, and they've had really robust and serious conversations about that. Um, And then for for some reason, they haven't communicated those in a way that's really understandable. You might still want to say, that organisation is one that I'm inclined to say is an ethical organisation because the things that they're building are subject to a huge amount of scrutiny and due diligence. Um, It would be better if I knew about it, but I'm still inclined to think that they're putting out products that are pretty good. Whereas an organisation that puts zero thought behind the scenes into what they're doing but is able to tell this beautiful narrative around what they're trying to do and he says, we're open to feedback and we iterate and all the rest. That organisation might be really good at PR. They might be really good at storytelling. They might even be really good at version 6.0 being exactly the product that it should have been to start with because they're really open to feedback. But there's a good chance that there have been people being harmed throughout the process through versions 1 through 5. There are things that they should have paid attention to that they didn't. So in like business circles and in business ethics, they talk about the difference between trust, which is like we are willing to jump into the unknown with you as an organisation. And then there's kind of legitimacy, which is, well, there are good ethical reasons why this, this thing can exist or should exist independently of how people feel about it because the processes that they undertake, the reasons that they have for existing and the kind of responsibilities that they exercise are sound. And so regardless of how people feel about them, they are legitimate. Now, what we want is both. We want tech companies to be legitimate. They have really good reasons for existing and they have some ethical norms that they adhere to. And we want them to be trustworthy as well. And that means selling that story and and speaking to us.
0: So Apple has been doing its best to sell itself in a trust story and a legitimacy story. And yet we know that, in fact, that is at least in some part PR from Apple. Facebook, on the other hand, has simply been horrible through this whole thing. Google sort of sits somewhere in the middle. Amazon kind of sits somewhere in the middle. But we do see that every one of the technology giants is trying to face both the trust and the legitimacy issue. And they're not able to get themselves around it. They're not able to be consistent with their stories. What is that telling us about what they're missing, what they're not seeing, and also what we're
1: not seeing? Okay, so for me, the thing that is missing most is that there is a real, um, there's a real challenge that every organization have, and the tech companies especially have, in that they are trying to get their kind of integrity and their moral authenticity after the fact because they're afraid of losing business and market share. Um,
0: so, business what- and market share that they got by kind of keeping a blind eye to all of this.
1: For sure. And there were there were advantages, arguably, in them doing that, at least in the short term. There are people who will say in the long term, you're better to be a moral institution. But set that aside. If you wanted to, like, start with a very basic claim about ethics, it's to say that what makes something an ethical action is when you do the right thing because you think it's the right thing to do. And so when you just put that general statement and you put it on to people who say, "Oh my gosh, we're losing money. We need to do something to keep our market share alive. We need to we need to start to, you know, change the narrative so now we're going to be ethical because it's going to be in our best interests." You've shot yourself in the foot to begin with because you're not doing it because it's the right thing to do. You're doing it because it's in your best interest. And that makes that makes me think what's going to happen when it's not in your best interest anymore?
0: Well, and we see this in Apple, and Apple's handing over all of its iMessages to the Chinese government. You know, even though they protect your privacy, there are circumstances where they'll be like, "Ah!" maybe not. And so you do have this conflicting narrative where a company will say one thing, and then they will do something else because, again, they're actually just acting in their interests. And when you do that, you lose both legitimacy and trust.
1: Possibly. There are complications in that example. Um, And the complications arise because, again... We're having to infer why they've made these decisions from the decision that they've made and from context and some of the other things that they've done in the past. There are lots of really complicated decisions that global entities have to make when they're operating in different markets that have different legal systems and different legal structures. And you can see this across the board. There are. I remember doing some work a few years ago with a um, co- cosmetics company who take a very firm position on animal testing. They don't believe in animal testing. But it's obligatory for any uh, product to enter, any foreign product to enter into the Chinese market that it has been tested on particular kinds of animals. And they do operate in that market. And their reason for doing so is that if they're not part of that market, they can't exercise any power to try and change those norms around animal testing. You can subject that to scrutiny and say, is that actually their reason for operating there? Or is this kind of gilding the lily a little bit? Um, But if they're transparent, if they explain that story, then we can go, okay, I can see that there might be well-founded reasons for them doing that. I also think that they're still wrong and we can now have a sustained argument around the terms of that. And this, we're just talking about tech on a business level at the moment, right? We're not even talking about the particular functionalities that a technological artifact has and how we might have some argy-bargy around that if there's some transparency around. What decisions have been made? What trade-offs have been made, say, between freedom and efficiency of use, for example? All of these things, if you kind of show your work, I keep throwing back to this high school maths teacher I had who didn't like me and who I didn't like and has somehow become important in my career, but used to say you get you get one mark for getting the right answer and you get three marks for showing your work because it's at that point where if you don't get the right answer, we can determine where it went wrong we can improve things for next time. And if you did get the right answer, then we can understand how you got there so that we can replicate that in other contexts. That piece around showing your work when it comes to complex systems, when it comes to technology companies today in proprietary contexts, has been pushed back on because they've said, you know, this is either too complicated for people to understand, it's commercial inconfident. Incompet- But what we're suggesting is that maybe the piece of transparency that one is the low-hanging fruit and two is more powerful from an ethical perspective is talking not about the particular functionality of the system, but talking about the human stuff, what the reasons are that you decided to make this, what some of the thorny areas where you had to make a call one way or the other are. Did you anticipate any potential harms of misuse from this and what did you do to mitigate them? If there were some risks, why do you think those risks are worth it? What are the benefits that weigh that out? Now, none of that is going to be something that your ordinary person can't understand. It's going to humanise the conversation around technology and it's going to socialise it by allowing everyone to have input. So I do think there's a responsibility for transparency around those systems, um, but I don't think it's necessarily transparency of the kind that lots of people are interested in.
0: And we're back talking to Matthew Beard about the ethics of technology. So, Matt, you have said people don't come into work thinking they're going to build the Death Star. And yet, we have a range of Death Star-like technologies in the world today. And we need to think about, particularly as these technologies are getting smarter or more autonomous we need to start to think about how we design them for their own capacity versus our own ability to make decisions on how we use them. How do we start to map that out? Because these technologies are now coming very quickly.
1: Yeah, I think that there are a couple of important pieces to the puzzle here. Um, And that's important to say, because it's often billed as there being one particular magic bullet that is going to solve all of these problems. And Um, There have been some who have talked about ethics in that way, that we just need good people working in these organisations, and that's going to stop these problems from happening. I don't think that's the case for two reasons. Firstly, I think we already do have lots of good people in these organisations, but these are hard and complicated problems that just being a good bloke or a good Sheila is not going to be able to kind of repair the kind of complexity of those issues or kind of make that disappear. The second thing is not everyone is is a good faith actor who's trying to do the right thing. Um, and for those people, you need a really complex kind of um, regulatory system and accountability. So first thing to say is that um, ethics is not a voluntary opt-in system. It's not a replacement for law or regulation, um, but it takes us above that bare minimum Um, we don't just want tech companies, given their scale, given their ability to influence our lives, um, and given the capacity they have to improve them for so many people, we don't just want them thinking legalistically about what is the minimum standard that I need to reach here. Um, we want them ethically and as designers to be thinking, how can I make this thing the best version of itself? Um, And one of the things that I've been saying is that you can't build great technology unless it's good as well. And that means good in the ethical sense. And so what I've been trying to do is just map what are the various different kind of moral responsibilities that um, technology designers need to take into account when they're building their products. And you come up with some very nice, fairly intuitive and somewhat abstract principles like don't treat people as if they were tools that you can just use to get results. You know, try to amplify rather than constrain human freedom. Take responsibility for what you're doing. You know, design to include vulnerable users. Now that stuff is, I think most people would nod their heads in agreement. The complexity comes in taking these high, high-minded principles and translating them into really practical design decisions. And so what we've tried to do is to... Translate and distill those really complex principles into operational kind of functions and practices so that they're, they're more specific ways of giving voice to those problems. Um, but we've also tried to build some kind of methodologies about how teams and designers can actually sit down and ask really practical questions that elicit the ethical complexity that's involved in a particular situation. So if you think about ethics as a kind of lens by which you view the world um, – we can see the ethical dimension of things if we choose to look in that way or inquire in that way, but we can also ignore it by not asking those kinds of questions. So a basic example of this is kind of what we call sort of ethical red teaming. So a lot of problems arise when we we talk about kind of ethical negligence, and negligence can often arise not because you're not paying enough attention to something, but because you're too close to something. You can't see the forest from the trees. And red teaming is a practice that comes from, you know, security groups where they'll invite someone in to see what the what the security holds in a particular yeah, pen, system. Penetration testing. Right, exactly. But from an ethical standpoint, what we're trying to do is seek impartiality and distance. And so as it, if a design team are working really hard on a particular problem... Um, They can sometimes have drunk the Kool-Aid a little bit of some of the business imperatives, some of the things that they think are really fun or really clever bits of code that they've become really attached to. And they need someone to come in from outside and ask some hard questions about, look, this is a beautiful piece of code, but it manifests in enabling people to do something that they shouldn't be able to do, or it actually stops people from doing something that they should be able to do. So I think you need to scrap it. Or how would you defend that and kind of prosecute the case for here are the points at which I think this product is inethi- unethical or might give rise to ethical problems. And then to test, have you made these kind of trade-offs in the right way? Have you stuck to the brief of this product or has there been some kind of mission creep in what you're trying to achieve here? And was the brief a good one to begin with? Maybe there were some some big problems in the original request for this kind of product that you, you didn't interrogate because either... Um, you you weren't aware of them at the time because they only became clear as you started to develop the product because if you hadn't taken on that particular piece of work at that particular time, then there was a good chance that your startup, which is just getting off the ground, was not going to exist anymore. So there there are lots of reasons why we might take something on that we shouldn't have taken on. And that ability to step back and invite someone to be impartial in that process is just like one among a myriad of different ways that we can start to, in a more serious way bring ethics into the conversation.
0: All right, to bring it back to military machines, because the military has been one of the axes by which technological development has moved forward over the last, say, 10,000 years. All right, this is not a new thing. Military and technology, since we really started smelting metals, have kind of gone hand in hand. We now have this idea that we can use the current and next generation of both machine learning and artificial intelligence tools to help us build things that are smarter, that can in some sense act with autonomy in our a range of situations where it's starting to see people ask questions and their ethical questions about should that autonomy include lethal force? When is it appropriate? When is it about saving soldiers on the battlefield? All of that. How do we negotiate Asking those questions against the force of, well, we have to protect ourselves, we have to protect our soldiers, we have to protect the nation, because those are always the things that will be presented as the ethical imperatives there and not the the other ones around, yes, but are we actually wanting to give that kind of autonomy to deprive people of life to machines? That that I mean, that sort of agency. How do we? Because this looks like to me over the next billion seconds is going to be a big part of the conversation that we're having about technology.
1: Yeah, I think the first thing to say is that that problem is not a new one for military operators who are interested in conducting themselves ethically and adhering to the rules of engagement, the laws of armed conflict, and the moral norms around what it means to fight war well. Um, we talk a lot now about the asymmetry problem, which is basically that when um, when two nations go to war with one another or two groups go to war, because increasingly one of the problems is we don't have nation states fighting anymore, but um is that when there's a huge power imbalance between those two groups the only strategic advantages that the weaker group can have is by subverting the laws of armed conflict um and that's why you get guerrilla tactics that's why you see terrorism on the rise that these are actually um these are problems of asymmetry they're not necessarily again prob- problems of the inherent badness of the people involved um and if you talk and I have because I have a background in military ethics to um to people who are actually engaged in combat, they they wrestle with really hard problems. If we weren't the more powerful nation, could we say, and i've I've heard these conversations take place between um between different members of the military saying provocatively, could we honestly say that if the shoe were on the other foot, if we were the least the less powerful nation, if we weren't the occupiers, if we were the occupied, could we honestly say that we wouldn't resort to the tactics that we complain about um today? And, that's a really hard problem for, um, for powerful militaries to face, but it's not a new one. It will arise again in the cases of um, technology. that The easiest fix is the one that kind of the Stop Killer Robots movement is is trying to advance, which is to say, well, if nobody has them, then we don't, we don't let that imperative come in to begin with. The hard problem is going to be if some people or some nations say, yes, we are going to utilise these, and yet there are still moral reasons why other warfighting nations wouldn't utilize them.
0: I also see the outline becoming progressively more less distinct, you know, that again, particularly with tools that use a lot of AI and machine learning that in fact the people who are using that tool form a strong partnership with that machine and that agency is in some sense shared between the smart machine and the person.
1: We are seeing a little bit of that. There's a um there's a fabulous philosopher named Nolan Gertz who's working out of um the Netherlands at the moment. He's um he's talked about the ways in which um, technology can make us nihilistic. It can lead to us not taking responsibility for our actions. Um, And one of the test cases that he's seen as an example where that hasn't happened is the relationship that is formed between bomb defusal teams and bomb defusal robots, where they, they actually have a level of care and concern for these robots and they have invested in a way kind of morally and emotionally as though these were comrades. So you don't just have a human technology system and capability which is enhanced, but you actually have this kind of quasi-moral relationship that's bu- building between those things. But that's that is predicated on there still being humans around to do some of that. And what we're talking about now is a situation in which possibly that's not going to be the case. And I think there are there are going to be some really big ethical challenges just on the level of like applied ethics and who's going to be harmed and stuff like that, but much higher level philosophical questions that need to be asked here as well around what does it mean to for our sense that we need to take responsibility for our lives and the choices we make, that we are able to sanitise warfare such that we no longer have to get blood on our hands. So Albert Camus, the French existentialist, kind of argued that, you know, one of the moral requirements that justifies killing is being willing to die. And that flips the script on some of the narratives around, well, we're going to do this because um, it's going to mean that less of our soldiers actually have to die. In fact, it would be great if we didn't have soldiers altogether. What does it mean for us to say that we are willing to kill but unwilling to die? And what does that mean for the the certainty that we would have to have around the justice of the cause that we were prosecuting um, and how do we have an effective system of ethical restraint and ethical management. So there's another um, there's another military philosopher named um, Jeff McMahon and there's a whole movement within military ethics which is called Revisionist Just War Theory and they basically say that the whole idea that um, the justice of a war is for the politicians to figure out and then it's up to warfighters to just make sure that they conduct themselves with honour and there's no relationship between the politics of the war. They say that's false. Um, warfighters need to be aware of the potential injustices of the causes that they're fighting for and one of the arguments that they have, one among many arguments they have in favour of this, is that if you did that, if the individual conscience of every single warfighter became a check and balance on the injustice of a cause imagine how much more difficult it would be to go to war. And we've seen examples of this. You know, in the um, Republican primaries, Donald Trump says that he's going to bring back waterboarding. And a number of generals, both current and retired, said we have an obligation to refuse illegal and unethical orders and this this would be included among those. So it's individual consciences that are pushing back on unjust orders. And so if you eliminate that and you have systems that maybe they're programmed to adhere to, Um, the Geneva Conventions and the laws of armed conflict, although there's so much complexity around applying those. um, Maybe you can safeguard some of those problems, but by eliminating humans from a number of steps in that process, you also eliminate a number of friction points at which a lot of ethical reflection takes place and at which the ethical case for continuing with something has to be made.
0: Okay, let's bring this sort of full circle because most of us will not be involved in the ethical decision making around military machines, except at a very broad social level where we elect our leaders who may be in that debate. But all of us are using systems that have been designed to perhaps manipulate us or guide us or nudge us. There's a whole bunch of different words and language that gets used around this. How do we negotiate our need for transparency? for ethical clarity for the narrative when none of that is really being presented to us now. You know, Facebook wants the whole world to share. Google wants the whole world to be searched. Apple, uh, no one really knows. Apple just wants the world to be easy to use, maybe. Uh, Amazon wants a drone to bl- bring you something after you shut a command at Alexa. So they kind of have their own stories, but none of them are particularly transparent. And all of us, I think, are feeling more and more hemmed in by this. So how do we find our own agency as individuals in that world?
1: It is perhaps the question, and that, as always, when you get to the question, becomes the hardest one to answer. Um, There's a framing issue, for one thing, which suggests that we ought to navigate this as individuals rather than collectively. Um, We will have more power as a collective than as individuals trying to make... make individual arrangements with these huge tech companies.
0: Because there's a power asymmetry. There
1: is an enormous power asymmetry, and a lot of the responsibility will always fall on the more powerful person to manage that power asymmetry because, by definition, we don't have a huge amount of that power. Um, I think there's also a framing issue in that we often talk about the ways in which we can exercise the power we have as being exercising those powers as consumers rather than as citizens. Um, I think a lot of the activity that we're going to need to undertake is going to be political rather than trying to hit them um, in their back pocket because they are monopolies. And so it's really difficult unless you are going to opt out of those systems altogether, which is becoming harder and harder to do, it's really difficult to hit them in their back pocket. And so we need to act politically politically rather than economically.
0: So this is through politicians and through regulatory fl- frameworks and through legislation. Are sort of, We need to be starting to think about those as the front foot here?
1: Yeah, I think we need to think about those as as a big part of the conversation that needs to be happening. Um, and that's difficult because they're really complex, even for regulators to get their heads around. Particularly because
0: they're international and exactly. tend to be existing in many different domains that they then know how to use for their own advantage in these Mm. situations. In other words, another form of how they have
1: power. Exactly. But the other piece of the puzzle, which I think is often underemphasized, is the fact that the people who are working at these tech companies, uh, they are friends, they are husbands and wives, they are sisters, brothers, parents. You see them at your barbecue, you talk to them in other settings, and increasingly as every company becomes a technology company, there are more and more of these people around. And they are not immune or distanced from the narratives and the human concerns of real people. Um, the Whenever you have an opportunity to speak to someone who is not in the, the Silicon Valley bubble of tech people talking to tech people and you can expose them to the human concerns around some of these things, um, a lot of ethical challenges arise when we are able effectively to be one person when we're not at work and another person when we are, and we can separate those two things. The more that we can have meaningful conversations about the ways in which technology is affecting our lives, both for good and for ill, and to have those outside of um, antagonistic relationships or power struggles between, you know, consumer and provider or between business and the state, Um when we meet these people on a human level, on a relational level, and we talk to them about the things that they're working on and what they feel about those things. I have friends who work at Google and I talk to them about Project Maven and I try to get understand... How they feel about the
0: project Maven being?
1: Project Maven was a um, was a uh, facial use of facial recognition data, basically to help the U.S. military to train um, drones and UAVs, um, and so it had military operations. One of the things that it used was the whole like recapture thing. So when you have to prove you're not a robot and click on a particular buttons, so no matter what your stance on. You know, um, US operations in Yemen, for example, you might have just by accessing a site been training a drone so that it could target more effectively. Um, Google employees had enormous problems with that and they acted as employees and Google terminated this contract. Now, not everyone thinks that's a good thing necessarily, but it's an example of people working in a tech company acting as humans who have not drunk the Kool-Aid, or entirely subjected their own consciences to, like, the business imperative and things that Google wants to achieve. Now, one of the reasons that that's happened, I think, is because they have been sensitive to broader social narratives and ethical concerns about some of what's going on. The more and more that we can expose them to that and suggest that there is moral praise that can be attained in being um, a human and ethical tech designer as well as a technically competent designer and that there is potentially moral shame involved in not being interested in those things, that on a social level we are going to respond to this in the ways that we always have by distancing ourselves from some people and leaning in towards some people and embracing them. I think that's going to mean something as well.
0: Matthew Beard, thank you very much for joining us on The Next Billion Seconds.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Toward the end of Series 2 of The Next Billion Seconds, a friend approached me. He'd been listening, and he sighed. "Uh Uh-oh. What's up, I asked. Well, and he seemed very apologetic in his reply. Well, it's hard going. And when he said that, I knew he was right, and I had to own it. Series 1 went well, so I went harder. And you know what? Maybe that's not quite the right approach, The future has opportunities and challenges aplenty, and maybe be a bit gentle with those. Ease people into it. That's what I've tried to do in Series 3. I mean, we've gone deep. We've gone broad. But I hope we haven't gone as hard, because I want the next billion seconds to be something you look forward to as much as I do. And we'll be back after a bit of a break with Series 4. In series four, we'll land on something that we've so far avoided in this series, the living world, because it's not all about the machines. And that's not hard to hear. Now, Has our conversation with Matt Beard got you thinking about the ethics we'll need to guide us safely into the digital future? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website. Leave us a message on LinkedIn. Tell us what you want to know about the future, and we'll do our best to bring it to you in another episode. Now, we've reached the end of Series 3 of The Next Billion Seconds, but don't worry. There's more to come, lots more. In a fortnight, we'll be back with another episode of Cryptonomics, and we'll explore in detail Facebook's new cryptocurrency, Libra. We've got great shows coming. You'll want to be here to listen. Big thanks to Matthew Beard for coming on our show. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.